said, this morning we are looking at Psalm 73. So if you have a Bible, please open there because looking through it will help you as we walk through this sermon. We'll go through all these verses from this passage. Psalm 73 is especially interesting when you compare it with some of the things we've already heard and said from some of the Psalms we've looked at so far. For example, take Psalm 1. The first psalm we looked at in this sort of series this summer as we've looked at some of these psalms. And if you remember, the book of Psalms begins in chapter 1 with this very strong contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Do you remember that? A very strong contrast between these two groups of people. Do you remember Psalm 1 saying things like, The righteous are like trees that are planted by streams of water. They bear its fruit in season. Its leaves don't wither. And so the picture of the righteous in Psalm 1 is that they are sturdy and strong and solid. They're like those palm branches, palm trees in Florida. They bend but don't break against hurricane winds. They will endure. They stand the test of time. But do you remember what Psalm 1 said about the wicked? But not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Do you remember grain that's thrown into the air and the husk and the straw just being driven away by the wind? They're like nothing. They're weightless and useless and rootless and insignificant and they're light and temporary. They're driven away by the wind. The righteous are like trees. The wicked are like chaff. Well, it's at that point that I think Asaph, who we see at the very superscription of Psalm 73, wrote this psalm. I think it's at that point that Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, would sort of nervously walk onto stage. I think he might tap the mic and say, is is this thing on? And then he might say, I just have one question. And very respectfully, Asaph would say, my one question is, what world are you living in? Right? He'd listen to Psalm 1. The wicked are like chaff blown away. The righteous are sturdy trees that endure. And he would say, just just one question, what world are you living in? Because Psalm 73 would say, because when I look, very respectfully, when I look at this world, I don't see a world in which the wicked are being blown away and the righteous are enduring like trees. In fact, I see a world which is quite the opposite. And in fact, I think the gathering of religious people would now grow nervous as Asaph began to speak and they'd sort of scoot in their seats and they'd get nervous in their hearts and Asaph would continue. He'd say, quite the opposite. When I look around, I see that the godless, the people who have no thought for God, no care for God, they don't seem to lack anything. They seem invincible and strong. They seem sturdy and enduring. In fact, I look around at a world full of people who have no regard for God, no regard for his laws, no regard for his ways, and they seem fine. In fact, not just fine, more than fine. They seem like they live extraordinary lives of abundance. They seem like they live lives that are larger than life. And when I look around, When I walk through the aisles of the grocery store and I see the faces of people that grace the magazine covers, when I see them with their perfect smiles and their glittery lives and their perfect put-together existence, I want to ask you, is that what you mean by chaff? Because if that's what you mean by chaff, could you sign me up? I think that's what Asaph would say. If that's chaff, I'll take chaff. Uh, what, What world are you living in, I think Asaph would say. Now, Seven Mile Road, have you ever been there? Have you ever looked around and asked, maybe to another safe brother or sister, or maybe within the quiet corners of your own heart, have you ever asked all this stuff we talk about, 
all this stuff we sing about, all this stuff we read on the pages of this book that we hold in our laps, all this stuff that we believe, have you ever asked, is it all real? And more than that, is it really worth it? Because you look out at a world that doesn't buy any of the stuff you buy, doesn't believe any of the stuff you believe, doesn't live according to the way that you live, and they seem fine, more than fine. Like, you take your circumstance. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're grinding it out in a difficult marriage. Maybe you're grinding it out in a difficult marriage. For you, it's not the fairy tale. For you, marriage is work. It's hard. You are spending hard-earned dollars in counseling, and you are talking through things and working things out, and you're trying to listen and learn and understand and move towards someone that now more and more your heart is having a hard time loving. And all the while, you look around, and there's couples everywhere, everywhere that have taken the exit ramp off marriage. And what's worse, what's worse for you is they seem happy. They seem happier for it. And here you are, grinding it out, day by day, hour by hour, in this thing, or any number of things. You're tithing. So you think of that. You are literally giving away tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars. That means that there are vacations that you want to go to that you can't go to. Stuff you want to buy that you can't buy. Schools you want to send your kids to that you can't send your kids to. And yet, despite all of this, because you have committed yourself to generosity and responding to what you read in the pages of Scripture with obedience, and yet for all of that, you seem to be just eking it by. And yet, you look out at a world that doesn't buy any of that, that doesn't believe in tithing or giving away like that, and... And wouldn't you know, they're going on the vacations you want to go on and buying the stuff you wish you could buy and sending their kids to the schools you wish you could send your kids to. And at some point you go, what is this? The examples abound, but here's the point. You look around and there are lots of people. People at work, people in your neighborhood, people at school, people in your family, uh, friends in your circles who don't believe what you believe, who don't do what you do, who don't live like you live, and they seem perfectly fine. More than fine, they sometimes seem better off than you, happier than you, more content than you, more satisfied than you. And so Asaph would say, you'll have to excuse me if I don't immediately see how the righteous are like trees and the wicked are like chaff. You'll have to excuse me because often I see that this world works exactly the opposite way. If you've ever been there, Seven Mile Road, if you've ever been there, friend who's listening to me right now, if you've ever struggled with doubt, if you've ever had a crisis of faith, if you've ever had, and listen to this, if you've ever had the experience where what you're reading in the pages of the book in your lap doesn't match with the reality that you see in the world and life. That's what this passage is. If you've ever had the place where what you're reading on the pages of this book doesn't seem to tell the same story as what you're observing in life, it doesn't seem to match reality. It's good and fine and print on the page, but in your reality, it doesn't seem to line up. If you've ever been there, I want you to hear first, you're not alone, and second, you will be glad that Psalm 73 is in your Bible. In fact, for you, Psalm 73 is your psalm, because in Psalm 73, you find a fellow believer who is plagued with doubts, 
who is rattled and shaken to his core. In fact, you find a fellow believer who is ready to throw in the white towel on this whole God thing. He is just about done with it all. And in fact, that superscription, that little font at the top tells us this psalm was written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was a leader of worship. He was a worship leader in God's people. So he's not just a local church leader leading worship from a stage. This is all of God's people, and Asaph was the leader of them all. And here is this man. I want you to get his profile. Here's a man whose doctrine is solid, whose theology is sound. Moreover, who stands in the front on the stage in front of all God's people and has a reputation of being a pillar of faith in the community. Meaning if you wanted to look up to someone of what the believing life looks like, you would probably stand there and look up to Asaph. And yet at this moment, when you read Psalm 73, Asaph is having a crisis of faith. And as we read this psalm, we're invited to walk with him on a journey. And the journey will take us from faith to doubt to faith again. That's the journey we're invited to take in Psalm 73. We're in faith, and we'll watch him doubt, and we'll see him go up to faith again. Let me pray, ask God for his help, and then we'll consider this journey together. God in heaven, we ask now for your help, because apart from you, we'll see print on the page. It'll register in our brains at most, but it will not land in our hearts. We won't see it, feel it, believe it, obey it. So we pray that as we go through the contours of this passage, its its dips and its turns, that you'd, by your spirit, carry our hearts along for that journey, that we would feel the contours. We'd take its dips and its turns. We pray that through all of that, you might make us a people who are nearer to God than when we started before this sermon and that we would find refuge in you and declare that it is good for us to be near God. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Asaph begins in verse 1 this way. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He starts with a no-brainer kind of sentence. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He starts with a sentence that everybody in the community, everybody in the congregation, everybody in the church would have added their amen to. It's as if, if I said God is good to us, everybody could say amen to that, right? It, it's almost like back in the day, there used to be this call and response that churches do. It'd, it'd be, God is good, and all the people would say back, all the time. And then you'd say, all the time, and they'd say back, God is good. It was like this thing everybody knew to say. Well, it's the same thing. God is good to his people, and everybody would have said, amen, all the time. It's a no-brainer, no-duh sentence. But have you ever had a time in your Christian life where what you know up here in your head doesn't register with what you feel down here in your heart? You ever have better theology than you believe, better doctrine than you experience as reality? For Asaph, he knows that he could say with all God's people, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But Asaph is confessing. He can't make it to the second sentence of this psalm without saying, while I know that to be true here, I'm having a really hard time believing that in here. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, verse 2, that may be true, but as for me, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. 
Asaph saying, listen, I could say with all God's people. In fact, I have said with all God's people. I led them in singing to God that God is good and good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. You think of this for a second. Here is the worship leader of God's people. The man on the stage in front of God's people. The man who was seen in the community as a pillar of faith, as an example of what it looks like to be a mature believer. In fact, I want you to know, none of us have reached the level of spirituality that Asaph has. Because if nothing else, he is a writer of scripture. No matter what quiet time or devotional life you ever have, you're never going to write something that gets added to this book, right? So none of us have come close to Asaph. What he has written has found its way to the pages of Scripture. He is the leader of God's people in worship. He is a pillar of faith in God's community. And this man says, I almost walked out on the whole thing. I almost abandoned everything I believed in and thought I believed in. My faith had all but crumbled. I tripped so bad I nearly fell away. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He was almost done with this whole thing. Now, what is it that caused such a crisis for Asaph that it nearly cost his soul? Verse 3 tells us, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I nearly slipped and walked away from the whole thing. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's what happens. Asaph starts looking around. And maybe he had seen it before, but now that he sees it, he can't unsee it. And here's what he sees. He sees as he looks around that there's a bunch of people who will do whatever it takes to get ahead. They will cut corners and cut throats. They're cutthroat people who will step on anyone, trample on anyone, do whatever it takes to get ahead. They are self-serving and self-seeking and self-promoting and self-centered and selfish, and they will do anything to get ahead. And here's the thing. It works. They get ahead. They're at the top. Everyone else is at the bottom. They're looking their noses down at everyone else. That's what I see. And on the other hand, I look around, and there's a bunch of people who are selfless. They live by the book. They walk the straight and the narrow. They're generous. They're kind. They're considerate. They seek the interests of others. And you know what I see? They get kicked in the teeth all the time. That's what I look around and see. And Asaph sees this discrepancy, this difference, and he can't take it anymore. He says, here's God's apparent reward system. The bad are treated good, and the good are treated bad. How messed up is that? And Asaph can't take it anymore. The righteous are doing terrible, and yet I look at the arrogant, and they are prospering. So don't tell me, I think Asaph would say, about trees and chaff. Because when I look at this world, the righteous are being blown away, and the wicked seem to endure and prosper. So truly, God may be good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me... I'm nearly done. He can't take it anymore. Now, one thing to note. What is commendable about Asaph is not just that he's honest. He's also very self-aware. He's insightful. Insightful enough to identify that underneath his doubt is something. He doesn't just in this passage doubt his faith. He also doubts his doubt. 
He doesn't just think that his doubt is rock solid. He knows there's something underneath that's propping up that doubt. And here he says, for I was envious. The doubt may have been the tip of the iceberg, but underneath that was this massive, solid reality of envy. envy. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, Asaph would say, my problem with God, why I struggled with religion and faith and believing in something, wasn't just this intellectual problem of, of some way that I could argue about God's injustice, that he does bad to good people, he does good to bad people, and so I had this theoretical intellectual problem. No, that's not what Asaph says. Asaph says, my deeper problem underneath it was envy. I was raging on the inside simply because I wasn't getting the good stuff, and they were. In fact, I think Asaph might even have said, and if I got the good stuff, I wouldn't have had any problem at all. I would have continued singing songs and leading God's people in worship. But I kept seeing that they got stuff that I didn't. And I was filled with envy. That's what's in his heart. Have you ever felt that? Envy is that thing where your head is like on a swivel. And it's constantly looking sideways. It constantly turns and your gaze is over there. That's, that's the heart of envy. It's always looking in that direction. My, my friend once described it, it's sort of like when you drive on 95. You drive on 95, you've woken up when you should. You got out at 4 in the morning. You took the express lane, not the local one. Cars only, not trucks and buses. And there you are sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic. And what do you do? You do that. And you look there, and the local lane is going at 80 miles an hour. They didn't wake up when you woke up. They chose the wrong lanes, and here they are moving forward while you're stuck here. And the whole time, you go, I should be there. I should have been there. Well, that turn is in every corner of our heart. That should be my vacation. I should be living in that house. Her job should have been my job. That person should have been the one I was married to. That life should have been my life. And it's this head that's turned sideways and constantly looking there. And Asaph's saying, when I tried walking looking that way forward, my steps nearly slipped. I nearly stumbled and fell off the path. And here Asaph is. He's looking sideways and he sees a bunch of people who have no thought for God no care for God or his ways, and yet here they are. They have front row seats to everything, first class tickets to everywhere. They wear designer clothes. They have an easy life. They have a personal assistant to help them make their easy life even easier. That's the wicked, and he can't take it anymore. And so in verses 4 through 12, He now goes to tell you, here's how I assess the wicked. He gives you a description of how he sees their existence. Here's the wicked from his vantage point, from his eyes. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Meaning he's looking around and he's saying, do you notice nothing ever goes wrong for them? They never lack for food. They never lack for health. They never lack for anything. They live lives of abundance. In fact, the stuff that troubles normal, everyday people like us doesn't seem to bother them at all. They're above everything. They they have everything. 
Verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts throughout the earth. He says, look, when I look at them, everything goes right for them. They have everything. They enjoy everything. And here's the rub of it all. You'd think that having all these blessings in their life would make them somewhat humble or move them to worship to say, Oh God, thanks be to God for all these things I enjoy. But it doesn't. Instead, their tongues strut about the earth, bragging and boasting about all the stuff they have done. They believe to their core they are self-made and self-autonomous and independent and have no use for religion as a crutch for weak people. They have made themselves, picked themselves up by the bootstraps. They are proud. They wear pride like a necklace, he says. They strut about the earth. In fact, as he describes them, he describes them as almost being comprehensively wicked. Do you notice he lays them out part by part in their hearts, in their eyes, with their mouths and their tongues, meaning part by part, every bit of them from head to toe is bent away from God, and yet they are doing perfectly well. Everything about them is turned away from their heart to their eyes to their mouth to their tongues from head to toe and yet life is going great for them. Now I don't know about you but that doesn't sit well with Asaph and he's struggling with that. He, he's struggling with the fact that life seems to go perfectly well for them. I remember talking to someone and we were talking about money, and he, he made this point that he said, you know, preachers, preachers, whenever they talk about money, they love to bring an illustration about some rich CEO who banked on his wealth and then at the end came into collapse or bankruptcy and then committed suicide or something like that. Something horrible so that you could see this guy trusted in his riches, and just like the Bible said, it didn't pan out. And preachers love that illustration. And he said, that's true. But what about the other 95% of the time when nothing bad happens to them, when they live their lives and they build their foundations and they carry on their names and they live acclaimed by everyone, celebrated by everyone, on the cover of magazines, seen as a giant, and they go all the way to their graves that way, skipping through life happy as can be. What about the 95% of the time when they seem to be doing fine and everybody loves them for it? Asaph would say, I know, that's exactly what I'm saying. In fact, look at verse 10. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase at riches. He says, look, all the people turn to them. They're popular and sought after and loved, and people don't find any fault in them. People look at their power, their wealth, their success. They hold them in high regard. They have complete disregard for God. And so they conclude, either there is no God, or if there is, then he either doesn't care or isn't aware of what's happening down here. Because if you're keeping a scorecard, the people who care about God seem to have lives of suffering, and the people who don't seem to be doing fine. And so here's the conclusion he reaches about the rich, about the wicked. Verse 12, here's the summary. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. There it is. That's what it comes down to. And if, if we were to ask him, I'd think Asaph would tell you, Asaph doesn't seem like he's mad at the wicked. 
He doesn't seem like he's out to punish them or get rid of them. The truth is, he'd like to join them. He's read Psalm 1. There's two paths. There's the path of righteousness and the path of the wicked. And I tell you, happiness is found in the path of the righteous. Blesses is a man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. And Asaph says, well, I'm looking at the path of the wicked, and there seems to be a lot of happiness there. And so maybe it's not as stark. And I think Asaph's struggle is not so much that he's mad at the wicked as much as he'd like to join them. They have the life he badly wants. And so I say again, if that's chaff, sign me up. I'll take that. And so here's where he lands within himself. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Can you feel it with him? He's done. He's fed up. He's finally had it. And he's essentially saying, here's my assessment. They do nothing right. And yet nothing ever goes wrong for them. I do nothing wrong. Yet nothing ever goes right for me. There it is. They don't do anything right. Everything goes right for them. I don't do anything wrong. Everything goes wrong for me. That's his assessment. And so he says, I have done everything I know how to do to try and walk by the book, keep the straight and narrow, follow your ways, and for what? Nothing. All in vain. Vanity. Meaningless. Empty. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and my hands washed in innocence. For what? For nothing. This living for God thing has got me nowhere and gained me nothing. That's what Asaph says. Could you hear it? Be like a single person saying to you, I could tell you right now of 50 of my friends who are sleeping around, who hook up with someone all the time, and they are having a ball. And I'm waiting. And I'm trusting. And I'm believing. And I tell you, it'd be one thing if God actually brought someone into my life. Then, then all that waiting and all that trusting would have been proven right. If I'm begging him, I'm praying for someone, if he'd just bring that person to my life, then all this would have been for something. But I look at them, and I look at me, and I say, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For what? Vanity. It's nothing. Do you feel it? You could give your own examples. Now, if we were in a discipleship group with Asaph, Maybe we'd be able to probe here, and we'd be able to say, Asaph, there's some stuff you're not seeing, brother. Right? We'd be able to, in soul care, ask him some questions, get to his heart. We might even be able to say, Asaph, it seems like you are seeing God as a means to an end rather than the end itself. Right? This one preacher, he gave this illustration. He said, for example, when he was in college, he had to take theater class. He had no interest in theater, couldn't care less about theater, but he had to check that off so that he could get what? A good GPA so that he could graduate and get a good job and earn a lot of money. So theater was just a means towards a lot of money, right? I had to do theater class, not because I cared less about theater, but because I had to do this, get a good job, get a good education and money so that I could have this money. So theater was a means to money. He said as he grew up, however, his change, his, his taste changed, and suddenly he began to enjoy theater. And he found himself spending lots of money to get Broadway tickets. And he said, do you see the irony? 
He said, I once used theater to get money, and now I'm using money to go back to the theater, right? There's the irony. Why? When I was in college, theater was a means to an end. But when my taste changed, the theater became the end itself. That which was just a means to me became beautiful in itself so that now that's what I enjoyed. And so the question we'd ask Asaph in discipleship group is, listen, is God just a means to something else? Are you just using him to get something else or is he the ends for you? Is he just something along the way towards something else you desire or is he the thing that you desire? But I don't know how well discipleship group would go for Asaph right now because he knows all this stuff here, but he's not feeling any of this in his heart. So Asaph would say, Tell me, what is the point again? What is the point of me pursuing holiness and fighting for purity and walking the straight and narrow? What difference, when I look at them and look at me, does believing in God make at all? It's all vanity. He says, verse 15, If I had said thus, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Remember who Asaph is. He's a worship leader. So he's saying to himself, if I had spoken all this out in front of God's people, you see, this private turmoil within his heart has corporate ramifications. He's not just a man by himself. He's in community. He's being held accountable. And even as we go further, I can't stress enough the role the community plays for him. But he's saying, if I had said these questions that were brewing in my soul out loud, meaning if I had turned these questions into declarations, if I had turned them into statements, oh man, I would have messed some people up. I would have caused some other folks' feet to trip, to nearly slip and stumble off the path. He feels this responsibility. He's the pillar of faith the leader in the community, and he's struggling, and he's saying, if I had said thus, I would have betrayed your people. It's sort of like if the sermon's finished, and the band comes up and says, the next song is, life is unfair and God doesn't care. You go, I don't know if we're allowed to sing that, right? If I had said all the things that were brewing in my heart, I would have betrayed God's people. And so I thought about this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Meaning, listen, I'm trying to work this stuff out. I'm trying to find an end to it. I'm trying to make straight what feels crooked and knotted and twisted up in my heart. I'm trying to process all this out, but I'm weary. Like all this trying to analyze my heart and find the sin underneath the sin and what's going on and underneath my doubt is envy. I'm trying to do this and I'm worn out. This felt to me like a wearisome task. Do you see? Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I almost stumbled. My feet nearly slipped because I looked at the wicked and I was envious of them. And they seemed to enjoy life all in vain. Have I kept my hands pure and my heart clean? All of this is for nothing because every day I'm stricken and rebuked in the morning until. That's the first word of verse 17. It may be the most significant word in this whole psalm, until. This all was a wearisome task for me, until. And with that one word, it's the pivot. It's the hinge. It's where the whole turn in the psalm takes place. Listen to me. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart, to Israel. But for me, I slipped. This was happening in my soul. In vanity, have I kept myself clean? This was all wearisome to me, until. 
till. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. All this was going on until, until Asaph went into the sanctuary, until he stood where God's presence was, until he stood in that place where he had stood with God's people, in that room where he had stood among the congregation, where he had prayed prayers and sang songs. Essentially, it's almost as saying, until I came to church. And there I was in the presence of God. And there I was in the company of the saints. And there they were singing songs I didn't have a heart to sing. Praying prayers I didn't have faith to pray with. I couldn't add my hearty amen to what they were saying. I was so weak, and yet these brothers and sisters around me, that place where I've heard them sing, that place where they've given testimony of the goodness of God to his people, there I was in that place, and there in the sanctuary, Asaph encounters God. Not just here, here. He senses God here. He feels his God. He encounters God. And there, beholding God in the sanctuary, he snaps back into reality. It's as if the clouds dissipate and the fog goes away and suddenly he begins to see straight and see clearly again. And I want you to know, so much of what's going on in this psalm is Asaph's cloudy vision. You see, envy had clouded his glasses. He was wearing envy glasses. And everything he saw was through those lenses, and he couldn't see anything straight. In fact, if you go back again and read 4 through 12 of how he describes the wicked, do you notice he exaggerates a little bit, doesn't he? I mean, not even the rich have it that good. Nobody has it that good. But the way he's seeing everything was so clouded. In fact, so much of what's going on in the psalm is what he's seeing. In verses 1 through 12, his eyes are looking sideways. And he's seeing everyone around him and the wicked, they have it so good. In verses 13 and 14, his eyes are inward on himself and poor me. Woe is me, for I have kept my hands clean all in vanity. But until, verse 17. In verse 17, now he looks upward and he sees God. And seeing God helps him see everything straight again. Now the glasses are off. And he starts to see, and he now sees, in fact, where the wicked are headed. Do you notice he said, standing there in the sanctuary, I discerned their end. I, I, I came to my senses. I woke up, and I realized what was awaiting the wicked. I discerned their end. He, he contrasts. Do you notice in verse 2, he said, I almost stumbled. My feet nearly slipped. But when I consider their end, verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Listen, for God's people, we may stumble along the path. We may trip up for a moment. But when I consider the wicked, oh, oh they're standing on a slope that's 45 degrees, slick with ice. They are going to fall. They are going to come to a ruin. I discerned their end. I realized they're like a dream. 
They're like a phantom when you wake up. They, when you rouse yourself, they, they're gone in a moment. Haven't you had the experience? You have a dream that feels so real, so vivid. You wake up, and then you have to catch your breath for a moment, and then realize it was just a dream. Though it seems so real, it was just a dream. That's what the wicked are like. Their invincible, sturdy, strong, larger-than-life lives it's going to be gone in a moment. In fact, in the span of eternity, you know what they are? They're a blip. They're here today and gone tomorrow. They're a phantom. They're a dream. They're blown away into nothing. You know what they are? They're chaff. They're like chaff that are blown away in the wind. They're like straw and husk on a grain that flies away in the wind. Maybe someone wasn't so off after all. When I discerned their end, I saw that their end is nothing, and, and seeing their end begins to cure him of his envy. When I discerned their end, suddenly he's not gripped with envy as much anymore. It, it's sort of like knowing what you know, would you envy, if this was 1912, would you envy the rich as they take their first-class tickets onto the Titanic? Knowing what you know, would you envy their first-class luxury liner Titanic tickets? Because you would know the food is going to taste good for a few moments, and the music is going to play great for a few moments, and the ride will be sweet for a few moments, but I would never trade my land spot for that ticket. When I discerned their end, that they're like a phantom when you rise. They're like a dream when you wake up. They're gone in a moment. You see, beholding God in the sanctuary helps him to start see right. And he sees the end of the wicked right, but not only that, he sees something else as well. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless... I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph. All this time, he's looking at the wicked and seeing what they have that he doesn't. But now, he suddenly wakes up to what he has that they don't. He has God. This whole time, his eyes are sideways. And he's going, they've got all this stuff that I don't. And now in the sanctuary with God's people, he finally sees what he has that they don't. He has God. So that he can say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have God. I have God. And would you notice, now even the pronouns start to change. Till now, it was they and them, and they have this, and their lives, and nothing bad happens to them. 
And after that, the pronouns were, and then me, and I've kept my heart, and I've done this, and I'm struggling all day. And now the pronouns changed in verse 23 to you. You hold my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Suddenly, he's not looking sideways at them or inwards at himself. He's looking upwards to God, and he's able to say, you have been here the whole time, haven't you? And I couldn't see it. Have you been there, Christian? You've been here the whole time, haven't you? And I couldn't see it. And in fact, verse 22, I was acting like a beast. I was like a stubborn ox. I was like a dumb mule. And listen, while I was pulling against you, bucking against you, while I was wandering and going away, while I was acting like a mule, you kept holding me by my right hand. Isn't that something? I kept acting like an animal, but you kept treating me like a son. Isn't that something? You don't see an owner walking his mule down the street by the right hand. You don't do that to mules. But you see dads holding their sons by the right hand down the street. I was acting like a beast. You treated me like a son. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. And when we see this, we notice it's not that Asaph held a good grip on God through all his wanderings. God held on to Asaph through all his wanderings. When my grip was weak, your grip was strong. When I was running away like a beast, you held me by your right hand, holding on to mine. And friends, when we see straight, is this not the good news we believe together? Is this not what the whole story tells us? That God was so determined to hold on to you that he himself came down to secure your grip. That he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who is the Psalm 73 righteous man, who does everything right, who has kept his heart clean and his hands washed in innocence. And yet truly, he was the good man who was treated bad. And yet on the cross, the father let his hand go so that he could hold a beast's hand like yours and mine. So that when we see right with vision right, we'd see God is holding us through the nail-pierced hand of his own son. In fact, if you're wandering this morning, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're in that crisis of faith, if you've got questions that you're afraid to ask, I want you to hear the prayer I have been praying for you is that today you would feel that there's someone holding your right hand. And when you look down, you would see it's got a, a nail-pierced wound right in that arm. That's the one holding on to you. When I acted like a beast, you held me supremely even through the nail-pierced hands of your son. And if you feel that with Asaph in the sanctuary among God's people today, then you can say with him, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want you to hear, that's not lofty spiritual talk. We've heard Asaph all this while, right? He has said stuff we'd be scared to say. He's just a normal believer like us. This close from wandering away from his faith. And yet, he has encountered God in such a way that now he's saying, Listen, there's lots of stuff in this life to enjoy, but there is nothing on earth I desire besides God. Over and above 
God. And so he concludes, verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Isn't it beautiful how he ends? Verse 2, but as for me, I nearly slipped. I was done. Verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. Let me tell you what the greatest thing is, Asaph says, is to be near God. Let me tell you what the worst thing is, to be far away from him. In fact, the way that of those who are far from God will perish. And maybe Asaph would say, maybe Psalm 1 wasn't so off after all. Psalm 1, verse 6, the last verse says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 73 ends, Those who are far from you shall perish. So shall everyone who is not faithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of his works. Let's pray together.